seated. If you haven't already, you can come up at this time and get the communion elements up front here, because we're going to partake together at the conclusion of the service today. Really looking forward to celebrating communion on this Resurrection Sunday. Also, for those of you online, if you would like to join with us, we would encourage you at this time to get the elements ready as well. Give you a moment to do that. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Capono. All right. Well, He is risen. Yes! Rocky, Rocky. <laughs> Okay, so here, here's what we're going to do. Um, it is a custom in my country, not really, but we're going to do it anyway. So um, I'm going to say, He is risen, and then you're going to respond with, He is risen indeed. And you really have to, just like that, like that. You have to be, you have to emphasize the indeed has to come from your toes all the way. So you ready? All right. He is risen. He is risen. Oh, there you go. All right. We're off to a fabulous start on this Resurrection Sunday. Uh, may I ask you to join me in 1 Corinthians, actually, the 15th chapter. I want to begin reading in verse 12. We'll read through. You can follow along to verse 20. Um, if you want to stand, you can, if you're able. If not, where you're seated is fine. But stand for the reading of God's Word. You can follow along as I read. So the Apostle Paul, and let me just kind of give you the backstory, just real quick. It's a, of course, 1 Corinthians is a corrective epistle. Uh, meaning that the Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, has to correct them, even rebuke them for what was happening there in the church in Corinth. And as it would turn out, <laughs> there was some real problems concerning specifically the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what he's going to now address head on. He's going to hit it head on, true to form, right, with the Apostle Paul. So. Verse 12, now, if Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if, verse 13, there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because 
we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. Oh, excuse me, just one moment here. I, verse 16. It's pretty bad when the pastor loses his place, yeah? <laughs> Verse 16, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ, speaking of those who died in Christ, they've perished, if there's no resurrection. If, verse 19, in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But, thank God for verse 20, now Christ is risen from the dead, and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep the first fruits, the resurrection, the first resurrection. Let's pray. If you would, please join with me. We'll ask God to bless our time together on this Resurrection Sunday. Loving Father in heaven, thank you so much for this day, the day that you have made for us to rejoice in and be glad. It's really a reference in Isaiah to the crucifixion, when your only begotten Son was lifted up and put on that cross, taking upon Him the curse of all of our sin. Lord, today we want to celebrate and commemorate the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection, and the rapture. So Lord, will you, as only you can, bless our time together today? And certainly on this special day, we would humbly ask that you, by the Holy Spirit, would first and foremost get our attention, and then second, keep our attention, hold our attention, so our minds don't wander and we miss what it is that you have for us on this Resurrection Sunday. So Lord, speak, we pray. Your servants are listening, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You can be seated. Thank you. So what I want to talk with you about today is the paramount importance of the Resurrection and the profound implication of what it really means to us and for us. In the passage that we just read, the Apostle Paul, by the Spirit, is actually addressing a false teaching in Corinth concerning the resurrection. And if you think about it, if there's ever going to be confusion and deception about anything, it's going to be specific to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? Because that changes everything. So Paul 
again, true to form, just inspired by the Holy Spirit, kind of plays it out and walks it through this notion of, okay, let's just, let's just see what that looks like. You say Jesus is not risen. Okay, let's go with it and see what, what that is going to be like. If Jesus isn't risen from the dead, then, well, we can just all go home, like right now, because my preaching is a waste of time, my time and certainly your time. Don't get up and leave right now. <laughs> but if Christ isn't risen, if, if Christ isn't risen, then we're dead. And we stay dead. Because if He's not risen from the dead, then there's no victory over death. So how, how's that working out for you so far? How you doing? I mean, your faith, it, it's pointless. It's meaningless. If Christ isn't risen, and He takes it, I, I think He takes it farther than certainly I, which, you know, if I were the Apostle Paul, which is why I, you know, God would never call me <laughs> to the ministry of the Apostle Paul. But I wouldn't have taken it that far. I, I got a little bit uncomfortable there before verse 20. Did you? Because, I mean, he just went for it. And all, all of a sudden you're starting to think through the ramifications of there being no resurrection, and the hopelessness sets in. If, so much so that of all the people we are the most to be pitied. I feel sorry for you. You think Christ rose from the dead? You're putting your faith and trust in that? And you hope in that, that He's defeated death? Pity. Well, I don't know about you, but if you're anything like me, I don't want pity. Yeah, you, 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 you feel sorry for me? Wow. Yeah. If Christ isn't risen from the dead, well, then that makes sense. So again, Paul takes it uncomfortably far for good reason, because he brings it right back in verse 20. And you'll forgive the paraphrase of this, but it's almost like the Apostle Paul, after going through all of these ramifications of there being no resurrection, just says, <laughs> yeah, no, huh? Just like that. I'm pretty convinced he said it like that. It's not recorded in the original, but it was kind of like, yeah, no, no. He is risen from the dead. Because he, I just took you through what Him not rising from the dead would look like. In what universe does that make any sense at all? In other words, He's showing and demonstrating the absurdity of it. That's absurd. In other words, if, if Christ did not rise from the dead, <laughs> just I'm not going to say it. I almost did. I, I mean, just, this is, this is, well, I'll just say it. This is stupid. <laughs> the, the word stupid is in the Bible, Romans 12, or uh, Proverbs 12, 1, just so you know, just saying, clear that up. Okay, so he's demonstrating the absurdity of there being no resurrection, right? But 
in so doing, what he's really doing is painting a powerful portrait of the resurrection by logically and reasonably explaining that Christ is indeed risen. There's no other conclusion to come to. Now, please know, and just hear my heart on this, and the Lord knows my heart on this, so. The last thing I want to do today is preach yet another predictable and traditional Resurrection Sunday sermon. You know what I'm talking about? And then, you know, afterwards you're like, well, you know, He is risen, He is risen indeed. And then you go home and have roast preacher for dinner, and then Monday morning comes and you go to work, and that's it. Um, I'm going to include myself in this. But to do that would leave all of us, myself included, empty in the formality of that which is the grandest and most glorious event in all of human history. I don't want to stand behind this pulpit, as is my privilege to every week, and just deliver a nicely packaged Resurrection Sunday sermon. Here's what I do want to do, and this is what I believe the Lord has directed me to do. I really want to talk with you about just what Christ's resurrection really means to us. I mean, this is not just a game changer. This is a life changer. And God forbid that we would ever entertain this notion that there was no resurrection. Because if that were true, and thank God it's not, if that were true, we are hopeless. We're dead in our sins. And there's no hope for us. And conversely, I'll flip it around. If Christ is risen from the dead, and He is, then we are hopeful. Hopeful. I really hope that today's sermon will be an encouragement to you, especially for those that are discouraged and even weary. I want to uh, share with you four of these powerful life-changing truths. And I know that can seem and sound cliche, but it's true. We're not talking about life and death. We're talking about eternal life and eternal death here. And I want to share with you four, certainly there are more, but four truths concerning Christ's resurrection and what it means to you and me. The four are, and we'll expound on them, but in order as follows. It means I'm saved by Christ. 
I'm guilt free in Christ, know the power of Christ, and have hope for Christ. Let's start with the first one. This is where it all starts. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means I'm saved by Christ. Since you're already still in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, let's look at the first four verses. This is the gospel. What does the word gospel mean? It means good news. Your debt has been paid. Your sins are forgiven. You're free to go. And whom the Son has set free is free indeed. That's what the word gospel means. So the Apostle Paul now is going to just lay out the gospel. It's not the first time. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But he's going to lay out what the gospel is. Verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, first and foremost, that which I also received. And here it is, that Christ died for our sins. And I want you to pay particular attention to what he says next. He's going to say it again, according to the Scriptures. Why is that important? Because when he says, according to the Scriptures, he's referring to the prophecies, the numerous prophecies that foretold of the coming Savior of the world, virgin born, who would be born to die for you and me, over 300 prophecies, according to the Scriptures. And that He was buried, notice the specificity, and that He rose again on the third day, and here it is again, according to the Scriptures. That's the Gospel. Wait, why is that good news? Think about it. First of all, He died for me. Why did He die for me? Because if He didn't die for me, then I had to die for me. Okay, we're good. I Thank you. you. You'll die for me? Yeah. Wait a minute. Why am I going to die? Because you've been sentenced to death because the wages of sin is death. We'll see that at the conclusion. So he <laughs> went to his death in your place. So good news. Yeah, that is really good news. Um, he was buried and he rose again on the third day. Why is that good news? Because again, think about it. He rose from the dead and He defeated death. Somebody needs to hear that today. Because you've had someone die, a loved one die, and your heart is ripped to shreds and you're grieving and you're in deep sorrow and pain. But that's not the end of the story. I have good news for you. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus defeated death. If you're saved, death no longer has a sting. Oh, you still grieve, but not as those without hope. 
because he defeated death. I love the Apostle Paul when he writes about, oh, death, where is your sting? It's almost like he's taunting death, personification of death, right? Oh, go back and read it, you know, today, before the roast preacher dinner. Um, but he, he's like, in a sanctified, you know, kind of strength, he's taunting death. He asked death a question. Death, come here. Question, I've got a question for you. <laughs> hey, where'd your sting go? <laughs> Is that too much? No, what, that's what he did. Oh, death, where is your sting? You don't have it anymore. You know what? Because Jesus rose from the dead. And you know what that means for me? I'm too going to rise from the dead. Because death is a defeated foe. My friend who I introduced you to last week, we were having breakfast yesterday before I took him to the airport. And uh, <laughs> this came up very morbid. But you got to understand our sense of humor together is, anyway. So we brought up the topic of death. Of course, you know, when you get older, it's a little bit more of a well, a topic, <laughs> because you're closer to that end of the deal than anyway. So we started talking about death. And he was sharing with me how that where he lives, you know, a lot of retired people and elderly people and that, and you got to know this guy, man, he's got such a big heart and he takes care of them. He witnesses to them. And, and he said, you know, some of them have uh, died without knowing Christ. And it's really heartbreaking. And so as we were kind of, you know, just kind of working through the death, you know, discussion, we came to the conclusion that the Apostle Paul is wanting for everyone to conclude, and that's this, no longer does death intimidate me. I'm not afraid of death. Well, there was a time before Christ when I was. Oh, the, the fear of dying? I mean, they have, come on, they have TV shows about this, right? What, what's that one? I'm, I'm sorry if I'm referencing this. I don't mean to bring up any bad memories, but a thousand ways to die. How, how sick and dark is that? I mean, it's all about death. And, you know, the, people are terrified and the fear of death. And then it comes full circle because the Apostle Paul's like, you know, you guys, if I had my choice, um, to die is gain, to live is Christ. And actually it's your fault because if I could choose, I would just go be with the Lord, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Because death is a win. <laughs> death is a, in fact, death isn't even death. No, watch this. Death is a relocation. Do you want me to give you some time on that one? No, we're just relocating. And then our stuff comes later for those that die before the rapture. You know, the Matson container or whatever, the pods show up with your new body. It's not like that, but I just wanted to use that as an illustration. So those loved ones that have died in Christ, they're present with the Lord in their spirit. Their body's still here, 
But at the rapture, the dead in Christ rise first. That's the bodily resurrection. They're given their glorified bodies. Then we who are alive and remain, oh, oh, <laughs> I'm not alone. I can tell. I mean, look at us. These bodies have a lot of miles on them. Boss up until we go up, because we get new ones. I could expound on that. I won't. But so again, it's, yeah, easy for me to say, right? I'm, I'm not gonna, death is a defeated foe. I, why would I be afraid to die? I, and, and Paul's basically saying to them, you know, I, I got it. You guys still need me. Thanks a lot. Reminds me of a pastor. It's so good. He said, um, if I like have a heart attack and die and you bring me back to life, you, you know where I'm going with this one, right? Don't you do that. I, I want to go home. I want to go home. Bring me back. No! Okay, I'm taking this way too far. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. The gospel is what saves us. Why are we embarrassed about that? Well, Paul would say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1, verse 16. You want to know why? because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. In other words, the Apostle Paul, again, true to form. You've got to love this about the Apostle Paul. Why would I be ashamed of the gospel that has the power to save? It's the power of God for the salvation of all. Why would I want to hide that light under a shade, cover it up? Why would I be bashful and shy when it comes to sharing the gospel with someone else. The enemy, I believe, well, I don't believe, I know he's been met with a large measure of success in this regard. Wouldn't you agree? Because he, he implants, probably shouldn't use that word these days. <laughs> he, um, well, for lack of a better one, <laughs> this uh, fear, gives us a spirit of fear. And oh, I don't know, because, you know, they, they might unfriend you on social media if you share the gospel with them. No. Okay, then you don't. You know, maybe I just kind of, oh, I, I'm an undercover Christian. <laughs> yeah, okay. So in other words, if you were arrested and charged, would there be enough evidence to Oh, I didn't even have to finish that one. You've been charged uh, for being a Christian, but there's not enough evidence to convict. 
Say, I'm getting convicted on that one. <laughs> Ephesians <laughs> 2, 8 and 9. You know this. I mean, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Can you imagine? We're in heaven, and we're in heaven predicated upon the works that we did on earth. What are you going to do? Hey, what'd you do to get up here? Oh, let me tell you what I did. And then here comes somebody else going, well, that's nothing I did. That's not heaven. I think that's the other place. I'm just saying. There's no, <laughs> again, maybe too much, but you get the point. We're saved by grace. The gospel has the power to save us by grace through faith. We bring nothing to the table of salvation. We do nothing. He did it all. There's nothing we can do. It's already been done. It is finished. I am saved. The jury's not out. The verdict's in. And lest one think that should be a firm grasp of the obvious, I'm sad to say that there are many, not Christians, who actually believe that said jury is still out, and that it does depend on you being a good person. Here's the truth. It's going to be a lot of very good people in hell. And now be nice on this one. A lot of very bad people in heaven. And I'll be at the front of that line. I said, be nice, because you're going to be right behind me. <laughs> it has nothing to do with what we do, how good we are, or how bad we are. No, we're saved by grace. It's all of grace. The second one I want to spend a little bit of time on. Wow, Pastor, you spent a lot of time on the first one. Okay. I'm thinking you'll see why here in a moment. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means I'm guilt-free in Christ. Now let me preface this by saying this. I am almost certain that there are some, perhaps many here today or even watching online, that are being crushed under the weight of the guilt and the condemnation of your sin. And you need to hear this word fitly spoken today. You're forgiven. Yeah, but it was pretty bad. No, you're forgiven. Yeah, but the guilt is just so heavy, and it's crushing me. And I'm carrying around the burden of the condemnation of my sin. You need not do that for as long as it takes you to get to the cross where that sin was paid for. But see, Satan wants to build this infrastructure of guilt and condemnation in the life of a Christian. Why? Because it distances us from the Lord. That's condemnation. Conviction, conversely, will draw us closer to the Lord. See, Satan shifts his strategy. Before we get saved, he'll do everything to keep us from being saved. Then we get saved. He has to regroup. 
re-strategize. So now, instead of trying to keep us from salvation, He's going to do everything He can to distance us from the Lord. And no better way to do that, the most powerful tool in His toolbox, is condemnation. Because see, if I'm under condemnation, I'm like, man, I better lay low. God's not too happy with me. I've not been a good boy this week. <laughs> you know, and then you try to overcompensate, right? You know, you, I'll read my Bible every day this week. I'll pray. And then we may make these commitments. I'm going to pray and out, half hour, uh, 15 minutes, and then you make it uh, two. And then that was rough. You know, just kind of make up for it. I'll even go to church. I'll even tithe, man. God's like, why? Oh, you're feeling guilty, are you? Yeah. It's been said of guilt that it's the gift that keeps on giving. And Satan knows that. So if he can keep us crushed under the weight of that guilt and condemnation, he will further distance us from the Lord. And he succeeded in his strategy. Romans 8 verses 1 and 2. Therefore, now this is after Romans 7. I know that's deeply profound that Romans 8 comes after Romans 7. Romans 7, do not read or study Romans 7 without also reading and studying Romans 8. Because you get to the end of Romans 7, you're like, <laughs> oh, wretched man that I am, who, not what, will deliver me from this body of death. I mean, you just feel his pain. Get to Romans 8 as soon as possible. Because therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. I want to draw your attention to Romans 6 verse 14, a verse that I struggled greatly with as a relatively young believer. I couldn't quite wrap my mind around what Paul was saying here. Let me read the verse. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. Okay. So let me see if I got this straight. So I'm no longer mastered by sin. Boy, I still sin though. I'm just, I'm told that I'm not mastered by sin. What does that mean? I'm going to be sinless? No way. You will sin less, but you will never be sinless. But we still have a problem here because Paul, by the Spirit, just got done saying that sin is no longer going to have dominion over me. What is he referring to? The temptation of sin? No way. Because if that were true, then Jesus would have sinned because Jesus was tempted. To be tempted is not to sin. James makes it very clear. It's not a sin to be tempted. Jesus was tempted, but He didn't sin. Well, when does it become sin? When we're enticed by the temptation and we're drawn away by it and we sin. So, okay, that, that doesn't even help me. You, you made it even more difficult to understand. It's a gift. I, that's what I do. But 
so what is it saying then? What, what is it about sin that is no longer going to have dominion over me or be my master? Answer, the condemnation of sin. The condemnation of sin will no longer master you, no longer have dominion over you, no longer crush you under the weight of the guilt of that sin. Oh, now you've got my attention. So wait, you're, you're telling me that I can be guilt-free in Christ? Yes. So, wow, that means that when I sin, not if I sin, and yes, I sin less when I sin, but I still sin. So you're telling me that there's no guilt? I mean, I sure feel guilty. How does that work? No, there's a difference again between conviction and condemnation. The condemnation of that sin will no longer have dominion over you. It will no longer master you and crush you, because you've been set free under grace from the law. The law kills the Spirit gives life. You know, when the law came down with Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus, and Aaron was, I don't think it took much convincing, because they went to Aaron, you know, Moses' older brother, said, hey, bro, <laughs> I don't think Mo is coming back. So we need a God. A lot of pressure. Aaron's like, well, just wait. He'll come. No, he ain't coming. We need a God. What are we going to do? Just the crushing pressure of that. And so what does he do? He gets all the gold that they got from Egypt, a lot of gold. And he makes a golden calf. Where do you think he got that idea? Egypt. And he has the audacity to say to the Israelites, Behold, thy God who delivered you out of Egypt. Oh, wait a minute, what? This golden calf that you made delivered the Israelites out of Egypt? Aaron, I don't want to be anywhere near you when that lightning bolt comes down. <laughs> Actually, we'll talk about that in a moment. There's no lightning bolt relax, under grace. So here, com <laughs> here comes Mo. Uh-oh. <laughs> He's got the commandments. He breaks them as he sees them basically break every single commandment that He's got on those tablets written by the finger of God. And He breaks them. He, he this, again, you'll forgive me for seeing the humor. I see the humor throughout Scripture. I know God's got a sense of humor, but it's kind of humorous to me, because when Moses asks his older brother Aaron, what are you doing? Aaron's answer, well, it was the weirdest thing, because, you know, I had all this gold, and, you know, I just threw it in the fire, and then poof, out came this golden calf. I don't know. That's funny to me. I, I don't know. Yeah. yeah, nice try, Aaron. 
Here's what happened. 3,000 people died that day when the law came down. Fast forward to the day of Pentecost. When the Spirit came down, 3,000 were saved. You see the connection? The law kills. Spirit gives life. That's chicken skin right there. Let me just kind of wrap this up. We'll move on. And again, this might be for someone here today. I, I need to hear this myself. I'm including myself in this. I just need to be reminded, and this is what the communion celebration is going to be all about today. It's remembering what Jesus did so that we don't live under that guilt and condemnation, because that's where Satan wants you to stay. No, get to the cross. Get to the cross. It's been paid for in full. He's removed your sin as far as the east is from the west. And by the way, I was talking to this brother after first service, the cross, the shape of the cross, the type of the finished work of the cross is replete throughout Scripture. We saw that in the prophecy update. The typology is just astounding. So again, you need to hear this maybe today. Don't let the enemy do that to you. Don't let him get away with that. You're forgiven. This, this self-loathing, what, that's going to help? And by the way, when did it ever change from grace to law, grace to works? Wait, you, wait, do you really believe this false teaching, which by the way is permeating the church in the last days, that you got to do something because it's not once saved, always saved. Once you're saved, you got to, now it's, it's, it's you got to do your part. Shoot me now, because if I, I mean, I got to keep my salvation. And that's works. That means I got to do something. Well, no wonder I feel so guilty and condemned. I'm about to lose my salvation. No, you're saved. You're secured in Christ. So don't let the enemy play around with you on this. Because if he can get you on this, he's got you. So now you're living in condemnation. You're not living in the freedom that is yours in Christ, in grace. You're saved, man, by grace. You didn't do anything. You, you didn't do anything to get it. You're not going to do anything to lose it. That should just settle your heart right there. You can live guilt free because whom the Son has set free is free indeed. You don't let the enemy do that to you, because if he can get you in condemnation, you're not in the Word, you're not in church, you're certainly not in prayer. It's been said that sin will keep you from the Bible, and the Bible will keep you from sin. But see, if you're in condemnation, you go to reach for the Bible, the enemy's right there. Hey, what are you doing? Oh, going to read about God's forgiveness. No! You're condemned. Uh, did I strike a chord here? Hey, I own this. You do, Pastor? I thought you were supposed to be. Come on. I'm not going to tell you this. It's not yeah, salacious. I mean, you know, I sin, just not as much as you. But I, no. <laughs> 
We better get to that lightning bolt pretty quick. I'm sorry about that, sort of, sort of. Number three, we're get, we'll get through this. There's hope. That was horrible. Actually, the Apostle Paul, I'm going to try to redeem myself here. The Apostle Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners. Did that help a little bit? (laughs) Number three, it means I'll know the power of Christ. The resurrection of Christ means I'll know, keyword, the power of Christ. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 7. But what things were gained to me? These I have counted loss for Christ. Yet, verse 8, indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law. There it is again but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Listen, verse 10, very carefully, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings. I I don't like that. Let's go back to the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, they go together, being conformed to His death. Oh, this is something about picking up your cross, denying yourself, and dying to yourself to follow Him if you want to be one of His disciples. That's exactly what it is. Being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to, and here it is again, the resurrection from the dead. What's Paul saying here to the church in Philippi? He's saying that you can know and have that power, not just of the resurrection, but because of the resurrection. I want to spend just a a moment on this word know. We've talked about this. It's in the Greek. It's gnosko. It's the same word that Mary used when the angel appeared to her and said, you're with child. And to which she responds, you pulled the wrong file. I'm sorry, but I've never known a man, Gnosko. In other words, I've, I've never had that intimate knowledge with him. And that, that experiential knowledge, you'll forgive me, but I've never had intercourse, Gnosko. So I cannot have conceived. No, you, you are with child miraculously, and will give birth, the virgin birth, to the Savior of the world. Same word that's used here by the Apostle Paul, that I may gnosko Him, and not just know Christ, but the power of Christ's resurrection. In other words, I can know that, I can experience that, I can have that, that can be real in my life. Think of it this way. How much power do you think it took to raise Jesus from the dead? I'll give you the answer to the test. Don't you like it when people give you the answer to the test questions? The answer is omnipotence. All power, the omnipotence of God. He is all-powerful. 
And you would need to be all powerful to do that. <laughs> That's power. Dunamis in the Greek where we get our English word for dynamite. That's power. The power of the Holy Spirit vis-a-vis -vis the resurrection. I want unfettered access. I'm not power hungry. Maybe I am. But I want unfettered access to that, that power. And it's mine in Christ because of the resurrection. Romans 8 again. Hope you don't have whiplash going back and forth between all of these passages. You know, your devices make it a lot easier. You just go, there you are there. This time verses 15 through 17. Now, this is really interesting. Listen to what Paul says. For you did not read, this is the lightning bolt portion. I needed to get here quick for obvious reasons. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself, verse 16, testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory. Okay, stay with me please. Very important. The enemy doesn't want you to hear this. We're not a slave again to fear. Fear of what? Well, you sin, and then fear sets in, because surely the other shoe going to drop. And God's going to, man, God's, God's had it with me. He's had it up to here with me. And we fear. It's, it's like when you're a child, remember when your mom was, you just wait till your dad gets home. Fear. That's what he's talking about. The law is going to come down. Oh, when your dad gets home. That's why I always go to bed before I got home. <laughs> then try to sleep in before he, you know, until after he left. It didn't work anyway, but that's the, what Paul's saying here is, no, <laughs> you're not living in that relationship with your heavenly father. That might have been your relationship with your earthly father, but not your heavenly father. Because see, it's grace. If it were law, be, be afraid, be very afraid because you're, you're going to get it. But no, this is grace. And where did sin abound, there did grace much more abound. And so here you are, you blew it bad, okay? And you're just waiting for God to just, I mean, you're going to get a spiritual spanking, the likes of which you've never had before in your childhood. You're going to be grounded for the rest of your childhood, actually. <laughs> So you're just waiting for it. You're in fear because of it. And here he comes. Oh. And instead of a spanking, which we feared, it's a blessing. That's grace. What does that do to you? What does that do to you? I'll tell you what it does to me. First of all, it brings me to my face before the Lord. I deserve your heavy hand on me. But instead, you have just grace for me and mercy for me. And 
my love now for the Lord. And now that is a motivation. I'm not serving the Lord or obedient to the Lord out of fear. No, it's out of love. I, I, I don't, it makes it so hard to sin against a God like that. We're not living in fear, walking on spiritual eggshells, as it were. Man, I better not blow it. The more you think and you're focused on that, okay, I'm not going to blow it, I'm not going to blow it, you blow it. No, oh, that's it, I'm going to get it. And then you don't get it. And it's the kindness of God, Romans 2, 4, that leads a man to repentance. And it so touches you, moves you, changes you, and it motivates you. Now it's kind of like, and this, in the Arabic, it's Baba, Hebrew, Abba, English. I know this is weird for people. It shouldn't be. We cry out to Him, Daddy. He's my Heavenly Father, but he, he, he wants us to call Him Daddy. Daddy. He's a loving Heavenly Father, Abba Father. And instead of just being afraid of Him coming down on you, instead He, he just showers grace upon you. And that ruins you and endears you to Him. You know what the fear of the Lord is? Proverbs says the beginning of wisdom. It's also to hate evil. You know what that means? It's not that you fear God. Oh, I fear God. Not like that. Not, not, Paul, that's what Paul's saying this. It's more like this. You fear doing anything that would break the heart of your loving Heavenly Father. The evil that would break His heart breaks your heart. That's the fear of the Lord. It's to hate evil. You, you hate doing anything that would hurt the heart of God, this God of love. What kind of God is this? Who is like unto you, O God? Well, it brings me to the last one, and ah, this is the proverbial icing on the cake. The resurrection means I'll have hope for Christ, namely His soon return in the rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, my favorite, I know, I know, along with all the favorites, but this one is my favorite beginning in verse 13. Now, here's a preface. Just bear with me. We just read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first four verses where the Apostle Paul explains what the gospel is. But that's not the first time he explained what the gospel is in his letters. The first time he explained what the gospel is in his letters was in his first letter. Again, I know that's a profoundly <laughs> deep and, uh, yeah. but what was his first letter to the Thessalonians? The very first letter the Apostle Paul ever wrote was to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians. And can you believe it? 
He's going to talk to them and teach them about Bible prophecy and the rapture, because it's the gospel. The first time the Apostle Paul explains the gospel, he includes it in the context of the rapture. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Eh? What's your point, Pastor? Actually, you're asking, do I have a point? I do. I have a point. What's your point? My point is the Apostle Paul couldn't have spent, most believe, more than three months in Thessalonica before he was run out of town. He started this church there. I, I, doubtless he led many of those believers in Thessalonica to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ while there. He loved them so much, so much so that he wanted to teach them as new believers the gospel of Jesus Christ, including the rapture of the church of Jesus Christ before the seven-year tribulation. And it's right here. You ready? Verse thir well, what are you going to say? No. Verse 13, after that, brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant. There it is. About those who fall asleep, speaking of death, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. That's the gospel. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Again, speaking of death. And here's why, verse 16, for the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we, be a we, we, we're a we. Are you a we? We. <laughs> oh no. What have I done to you, poor people? After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up. Harpazo in the Greek, rapturous in the Latin, caught up with great force together with them in the clouds. With who? With those loved ones that died in Christ. They're going to get their new bodies first. That's fine. As long as they get mine, they can go first. But I'm next in line. That's fine. Get mine. And then Paul writing the Corinthians in chapter 15 again, 50, uh, 51 actually, talks about how it's going to be a metamorphosis in the twinkling of an eye. Not a blink, twinkling. That's very, very fast. We put off corruptible the old bodies. I, that alone, you know, just, and then we get our new bodies, our glorified bodies, and then we're going to meet them in the air. We're going to see them again. And that's not all. We're going to see Jesus. And so we will be with the Lord forever. And then He says this, talk about good news. This is the gospel after all. This isn't bad news. 
I mean, it would be bad news if he said, hey, so you better hunker down, buckle up, because you're going to go through the tribulation and third of the world's populations is going to die, and then another fourth is going to die, and then everybody's going to die. And then verse 18, he says, therefore, encourage each other with these words. It doesn't work. This standalone, verse 18, is one of many arguments, and there are many, for a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. He's encouraging them, encourage one another, not much longer. And by the way, we, Paul thought he was a we, that it was going to be in his lifetime, by God's design. He thought, hey, we who are alive and remain, they're thinking, cool, the rapture can happen any time. Absolutely. We. Notice he didn't say, they who are the last generation who are alive and remain. No, we. We who are alive and remain. Encouraged. Be encouraged, you guys. Uh, this is as bad as it gets. Uh, be encouraged and, and have hope. We call it the blessed hope. Truth be made known, it's our only hope. Right? This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what follows is a childlike, simple explanation of salvation by way of the ABCs of salvation. This is not a formula. It's just a simple way to share the gospel. And maybe you're here today or watching online. This is how to be saved. It's very simple. The A is for admit or acknowledge that you've sinned. And when you acknowledge that you've sinned, that's when you'll recognize your need for the Savior. Romans 3.10 says, there is no one righteous, not even one. And Romans 3 tells us, uh, 23 tells us why. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We miss the mark. Actually, the word sin is an archery term, by the way. When you miss the bullseye, you sinned, you fell short, you missed the mark of God's perfect standard of righteousness. We all fall short. Romans 6.23 is the sort of packaging of the bad news first with the good news. What's the bad news? It's really bad. <laughs> You've been sentenced to death because the wages of sin is death. That's really bad news. But that propels you to the good news, because the bad of the bad news is the good of the good news will be. I know that's not proper English. Don't email me. What's the bad news? Death. The good news, life. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The B, and this is so central and so simple, is for believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe, believe in Him, would not perish, but have everlasting life. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. Keyword will, not might, not may, not could, not should. No, you will be saved. And lastly, the C is for call upon the name of the Lord, which is the natural expression when you believe in your heart. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth 
Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And here's why. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. And Romans 10, 13, lastly, seals the deal. All, there's that word again, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's simple. Yeah. Well, I want to, if you're able to stay, don't look at your watches. <laughs> if you're able to stay, we certainly encourage you to, so we can partake together of the communion table. If you haven't got the elements, you can come up at this time and get them so you can partake with us. Uh, same for those of you online. Um, the reason I sense that the celebration of communion on Resurrection Sunday would be uh, so apropos is because this is what this is all about. It's a much needed reminder of what Jesus did for us. What did Jesus do for us? Well, He died for us. And He defeated death for us. And He's coming back for us. That's the gospel. So here's the problem though, and there is a problem. We live our lives like we're not saved. Let me try that again. I'll say it a different way. I'll say the same thing a different way. Um, when I understand this and am mindful of this, shouldn't that change how I view everything in this life? through the lens of the rapture and eternal life. So we're going to read it here in a moment, but Jesus is basically saying, I, I want you to do this, not because you have to, it's not a got to, it's a get to. And when you do, I want you to do so in remembrance of me and what I did for you. Because the cares and the affairs of this busy life, you get caught up, no pun intended, in the busyness, the stress of life, and you forget that you have eternal life. And this is a reminder to kind of recalibrate us and reset us and to kind of regroup and remember that we're saved because of what Jesus did. And Jesus resurrected from the dead for us. So Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, is the account that we affectionately refer to as the Last Supper. And he writes, verse 14, by the Spirit, when the hour had come, he, speaking of Jesus, sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He's going to say that again here in a moment. Then verse 17, he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this. And divided among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Some of your translations render it, I eagerly await, fervently desire. Translated, I can't wait. This is the last time I'm going to eat with you guys. The next time I eat with you guys is going to be when what we're doing here today, church, 
is ultimately fulfilled in the kingdom of God at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Whew. So this is practice, practice. So I lost my place again. <laughs> it's a gift too, I think. But uh, oh, verse 19. Thank you. I got it. I got it. Verse 19. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this, and here it is, in remembrance of me. So for those of you that are here, if you'll take the packaging, peel back the top part, you'll find there the bread. Just take it out and hold on to it for a moment before we partake. I think it's incumbent upon me to say it at this point that if you've never believed in your heart and called upon the name of the Lord, putting your trust in Him for the forgiveness of sins, what a great time before we partake to make the most important decision of your life for eternal life. Because that's what we're doing here, is we're celebrating the gift of eternal life. We hold in our hand a symbol of His body, broken, not His bones, His skin broken, in order to shed His blood. Uh, first service, we uh, talked about this. This is very interesting. I love typology, as you know. But when Jesus said, it is finished, He was referring to the finished work on the cross being completed. And the number seven is the number of completion. So His body was broken, and He bled, and His blood was shed from seven, the number of completion places. You want to count them? Both feet, two. Both hands, four the back when He was whipped, five. The crown of thorns impaling His head, very vascular by the way, six. The seventh, final completion, when the Roman soldier stabbed His side, and out came blood and water. That's what we're celebrating and commemorating and remembering today, is how His body was broken, His skin was broken in seven places, the number of completion to finish the work on the cross for the payment in full for all of our sins. Would you partake with me? Thank You, Jesus. Thank You for Your body, broken for us instead of us. Lord, as we've just partaken of the bread, we do so in remembrance of what You did for us. Thank You, Lord. It's so inadequate, this side of glory, but there's no way we could ever even begin to thank You and express our gratitude to You. We're going to have all of eternity to praise You, thank You, worship You. So until then, Lord, would You please take from our hearts our thanksgiving to You, our adoration of You, our gratitude to You. Thank You for this gift of eternal life, and thank You for Your body broken for us. 
Luke goes on to write, verse 20, likewise, he, again, speaking of Jesus, also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So again, for those of you that are here, if you take the rest of the packaging, peel it back, you'll have the cup and just hold on to it for a moment. So we hold in our hands, again, a symbol, this time of the blood of Christ. The Bible says there's no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. And the blood, as we talked about in the uh, prophecy update concerning the Passover prophecy, the Passover lamb, uh, that lamb had to be slain and the blood had to be shed and placed on the doorposts of the house in the Exodus for the Israelites. And they would take that blood from that innocent lamb after inspecting it for four days, finding it to be without blemish or spot or wrinkle. Four days, the exact number of days that Jesus was on trial and found to be without spot, blemish, wrinkle or sin. And then He was to be slain at exactly the ninth hour on the 14th of the month of Aviv, which is exactly when Jesus was crucified and His blood was shed. They would take that lamb and they would shed its blood and they would apply the blood of that lamb, that Passover lamb, with a hyssop branch on the doorpost. The top, there was a basin at the bottom, one on the left, one on the right, shape of a cross. So when the angel of death came, and it came, it would pass over them if they had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their house. You see where I'm going with this in closing? Those of us who have the blood of the Passover lamb, the blood of the lamb, Jesus the Christ, on the doorposts of our house, we're saved from death. And the angel of death will pass over us too. Would you partake with me? And once you do, please stand. Capona will have you come up. We'll close in prayer and song. Thank you for your patience. Went a little bit long. I never do that, but I did. Father in heaven, thank you so much. Lord, again, it just seems so insufficient, inadequate, but it's all we can do in these tents, in this fallen state is to say thank you, Jesus, so much for your blood shed in our stead, because we're forgiven. And though our sins be as scarlet, you, you, because of your blood, the blood of the new covenant, you have made them white as snow. And you've removed them as far as the east is from the west, and you've remembered them no more. And You've asked us to remember that which you remember no more. That's too high for our understanding. But thank you, Lord, for giving us this to do in remembrance of you. And lastly, Lord, I, I'd be grossly remiss if I didn't say it and pray it. And I think my brothers and sisters would agree. Oh, Lord, Maranatha, 
Come quickly, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.